Good morning. Oh, wow. It's more of a response than they usually get. My name is Nate Wagner. Um, it's so good to be with you here today. It's a beautiful day. And so I'm just so thankful for that and for the chance to worship with you all. Um, we are right in the middle of a series on Romans 8. And so if you're joining us for the first time or visiting us, um, that's where we're going to be. And we're kind of starting to finish up this beautiful series. Um, and something that I was talking about with a group of um, people from Portico yesterday, as we were kind of discussing what the human heart is, um, is just how ridiculous it is for a group of people to come into the same building and worship God together. And it's ridiculous for this reason, because each and every one of us individually has our own personal situation. So we have cultural context, we have a context of language, of um, a national ethnic context. We have different ways of understanding and perceiving things. We also have different experiences that we bring into our life. And so all of those here, every single person represents just immense complexity in somebody's situation. And now we're all sitting under the same roof, worshiping God, doing the same thing together, trying to, trying to understand who God is, trying to correct our hearts to respond to him and worship to him accordingly. And so it's really amazing that this happens. And I was just kind of struck by that. And it was perfect because where we're at in Romans at the end, towards the end of chapter eight, Paul is also acknowledging that life in Christ happens in this fallen world. And so the whole kind of context of Romans 8 is living life in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ and how do you live in Christ? And so at the beginning of the chapter, it talks about no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's freedom in Christ. And it talks about how that's even possible and then it talks about, okay, those who are then in Christ Jesus and free, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They walk according to the Spirit. They put to death the things of the flesh as they live by the Spirit. And so that's essentially Romans 8, 1 through 17. And then in 18, it shifts to consider kind of the cosmic scope of salvation and redemption. And Paul identifies the situation of life in Christ, and he describes it like this. He describes it as waiting with eager longing, subjected to futility, groaning with, word, with groans that are too deep for words. And so all of this context makes life in Christ somewhat complex. And this is the, the spirit in which he writes these last few verses that we're going to consider today. And the first is what we looked at last week, which is this massive promise that all of that, all of that subject, the creation subjected to futility, groaning, it's subjected to bondage. All of those things are working together for your good. So that's what we looked at last week. And now Paul basically 
says, and here's how we know that is true. And so in order to do that, Paul, knowing that suffering, he was very familiar with suffering. And he knows that what suffering does is it actually extends your perspective of time. That's why when you're in pain, it feels like it lasts forever, is because time gets really long and slow. And so he knows that he's writing to a bunch of people who are in the pain and in the midst of sin and suffering. And so he plucks us out of that timeline and he gives us the perspective of eternity. And so I'm going to, um, I'm going to warn you that we are dealing with really powerful, mysterious, grand themes this morning. And there's a right way to approach and respond, and there's a wrong way to approach and respond. And so as we look at one of these terms that probably carries the most baggage with it, I want us to consider it in the context of what Paul's actually trying to do. So the term is predestination. And so for some of you, you might get really excited when you hear that. Might be a few, but some of you get really excited. Some of you get really nervous because you have heard this in the context of um, maybe pride or maybe being right versus being wrong or as having something figured out versus not. But the context that Paul's writing is very different. And so if you are if, if you're here and you're reading these verses and your response is to kind of become a little bit spiritually arrogant, then you're not understanding what he's saying. You're totally missing it. Because the response that he's trying to create in us is one of humility and comfort. He's trying to comfort people who are feeling tossed and turned by a broken world. And so this is something that's going to solidify our, our understanding of God's promise to us. So it's important. It's really important. It's not something we just want to say, ah, oh, it's not essential, so we'll just kind of like skim, over quick, skim quickly over these verses and not actually wrestle with it. We do want to understand what he's saying because the benefit and the product is that it actually comforts us in the midst of difficulty. But if your response is, kind of a cooling or a, an arrogance, which is so dangerous, it can happen. This is a dangerous topic for you spiritually, then you're not understanding it. And so you have to go back and do some work. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read verses 26 through 30, just to give us this kind of context. And it's always, um, Paul does this beautiful thing where it's, here's what we don't know, here's what we do know. And so this is one of those things that we do know. Starting in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, you are so good to us. You have... You have seen us in the context of our suffering. You have seen us in the context of being in bodies that are decaying, um, in a world that is decaying. And Lord, you want us to know that you are not asleep at the wheel, that you are here and that you are actively redeeming everything. And so, God, I ask that you would just give us peace, that we, would, that we would not believe ourselves to be God, but that we would just be able to rest in knowing that you from eternity have seen all of this. And so, God, I just ask that you would help us this, this morning, that we would be comforted by your perfect love, and that you would help us each do that. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the questions that um, is important to ask before we get into this is what is the difference between someone who is a Christian and someone who's not a Christian? What's the difference? And so at the most basic level, it's that one person is believing in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and one person isn't. What about that person allows them to believe that while the other person can't or doesn't. So as we are looking at predestination, this is one of those questions that it presents to us. And there's a lot of questions that are going to be a little bit uncomfortable that come up when we're really pushing into this topic. And guess what? We don't have answers for all of them. We just don't. And so we have to come and approach God's word here seeing what we should find out and not trying to find out too much for us because God hasn't revealed some things to us. And so this whole conversation that we're going to have today, it's really important because as I, as we, I kind of talked about, this is directly connected to your ability to be comforted in suffering and in the midst of things just going not according to plan. But it's not essential. It's not essential to believing in Christ. It's not essential to being a Christian. It's not even essential to being a member here at Portico. In fact, some of the, some of the people who were so faithful in leading me to Christ, I disagree with on this, and that's fine. Some of the most godly people I know believe something differently with me, and that's okay. There's, like, we can live at peace in that. But it is important. And we do, as a church, we want to um, be just kind of pretty upfront with how we see this working together in Scripture and what it actually means. And so I'm going to be um, somewhat direct in just presenting that, but not know that it's not coming from a, from a position of, hey, it's because you guys are wrong and you need to believe these right things. It's no, it's because I, I see this as being connected to the comfort that God has for his people 
And that's what I want all of us to take away from. And so we're going to look at this. This is, this is basically the takeaway of the text is we want to take comfort in God's perfect love for you. Take comfort in God's perfect love for you. And God's perfect love in, this, in these two verses, we see the outcome of his perfect love for us and we see the process of his perfect love for us. And so first we're going to actually look at that process, something that's been called the golden chain of salvation, and that actually culminates in the outcome of God's love. And so we'll talk about that at the, at the very end. So first the process of God's love for us, and it starts here with, um, with verse 29, the very beginning is for those whom he foreknew. So that word foreknow, what does it mean that God foreknows? Well, it could mean a lot of things, but from the context, we know that it's not God foreknowing something. It's not God knowing something about you. It's not his foresight into seeing like down the halls of history to seeing what you might do. And here's why. He says, Paul says, God foreknew you. It's a personal pronoun for those whom he foreknew. He foreknew people. And here's what knowledge actually means in Scripture when it's talking about people knowing. It's an intimate relational knowledge. It's not details. It's not knowing decisions that you're going to make. It's knowing you at your core of who you are. And this also attaches back to verse 28. It's those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. It's that same group of people. So we're talking about all of those who are in Christ. God foreknew you. Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us that it was before the foundations of the earth that he foreknew you before anything had actually even happened in time, God knew you better than you know yourself. He set his mind on you. He set his affections on you. So God knowing us in that way, foreknowing us from outside of time in eternity, it kicks off this process of God's perfect love. And it leads pretty seamlessly into when God knows you in that way, he's knowing you with his redemptive love. And another way of saying that is predestining you. So when God predestines us, he's choosing us. He's choosing us specific people for a particular destiny. That's just what the word means. And he doesn't choose us in a way that is cold and disconnected. He doesn't choose us so that we are forced in any way. He chooses us in such a way that it actually enables us to choose him. And we do that freely and with our desires that he gives to us. So when God predestined um, salvation to happen and come through for all of his people, and when, he, when, he, when we see that outs, happening outside of time, 
God makes a commitment to you. He commits himself to you before time begins. And so he actually knows you as his family before you actually came into existence. He's committed himself to you. When he does this, it doesn't make us savable. It actually saves us. This is, this is the difference. It's that for whatever reason, reason we don't get the answers to, God has chosen to put his special love on his people. And this comforts us in real ways in our, in our lives. And one of, the, one of the biggest ways I have felt comforted by this is in disappointment. When I'm disappointed because someone has let me down, because somebody made a promise to me that then either they couldn't or they didn't fulfill, when, they br- when somebody breaks their word, when somebody lies, it's really disappointing and it's discouraging. And so God is writing this, this to us. He's stooping down and he's trying to show us that outside of time, he has chosen us in such a way that it won't fail. He's not going to disappoint you. So no matter who or how you've been disappointed in the past, God will not disappoint you. He's fully committed. He's not going to stop at anything, Father, Son, and Spirit, to affect your salvation. That's what it means to be predestined. (laughs) So now we're going to get back into time and see how the foreknowledge and the predestining actually meets us in real life in our history. And it's, and it's, we're not only predestined, we're also called. So God calls us. And this brings us comfort when we're feeling inadequate, when we aren't able to live up to our expectations of ourselves or other people's expectations. When we have a calling, when we have something that we want to do, but then can't. We all have been there. We've all wanted to achieve something and yet can't. And here's why it comforts us in the midst of inadequacy. It's because this is a personal calling that comes to you directly from God. And everyone who is trusting in Christ has been called by him. Now, some of you may not remember when that happened. Some of you grew up in the church and God was calling you through your parents from before you even had a memory of it. And you have just been walking in that calling ever since. And man, isn't that beautiful that God has orchestrated your family to be part of your call? His call for you came through the faithfulness of your parents. But then others, like myself, who didn't grow up in a Christian home, and we can probably have a fairly vivid memory of when we responded to God's call in our life. And it can happen in, for some people, it happens like in a moment. They can pinpoint it on a day in time and say, on April 14th, 1972, 
That's when the Lord called me. For me, it was much more gradual. It was hearing the gospel presented to me by my friends who were suffering with my arrogance and um, just, just my foolishness for a long time. And yet at some point, and I don't know when, all of a sudden it resonated. I, I was angry at Christians. I thought they were weird. I thought my parents, when they were converted, were brainwashed and were in something like a cult. And so I, with that spirit, met these people who faithfully put up with me and engaged me. And the call was not something I wanted. <laughs> this call wasn't something I desired. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't trying to figure out who Jesus was. I thought I knew. But the gospel confronted me. It convicted me of sin. All of a sudden, I realized, wait, I have done things I can't undo. And the standard, even my own standard for myself, is way too high let alone God's standard? And how am I supposed to be in relationship with a holy God when I am sinful? So that's how the call comes to us in real time, is we have to wrestle with that, and then we respond to the call by trusting Jesus. And this call, it actually echoes the creative power of creation, of God speaking creation. Think of it like that. He makes us a new creation in the same way that he actually created, by speaking to us, by calling us into existence. When God made everything, he spoke and it was. And in the same way, he calls us individually, personally. He calls us by name in our circumstances to come and know him. That just solves. <laughs> For me, it just solves inadequacy. I don't, I don't have to be the one because it's God who is calling me. It's God's calling on my life. God justifies those whom he then calls. So now we're looking at a particular aspect of what happens after God calls us and we receive his call and believe. And this comforts us in the face of all rejection. So if we actually believe that God justifies us, no rejection is going to stick with us. It's going to sting. It's going to hurt. We're still human, but it's not going to stick. It's not going to define us because we will always be able to run back to the essence of justification, and that's God's approval. It's God declaring us righteous. So when we are justified, it's God saying, you are not only innocent, but you are righteous. And I fully accept you. There is not one part of you that I reject. Now, this is, this is somewhat problematic for us because how can a perfect, holy, just God justify sinners? How does that happen? And this is where we have to understand the substance of our calling, which is the gospel. It's that Jesus is the one who actually takes our condemnation. 
So Jesus, by living a perfect life, he was actually under an unjust penalty. When Pilate condemned him to death on a cross, that was unjust. And Pilate knew it. He was trying to get out of it. And yet God permitted it because God's plan the whole time was saying, yes, it is Jesus who is dying on the cross, but it's not his guilt that he's carrying. It's the guilt of all of my people. And so when Jesus died, he is taking our, our condemnation upon himself. He is destroying it by dying. And then what happens? He's raised. He resurrects. And that is his vindication. His vindication, his stamp of approval saying that, no, Jesus was righteous because the grave could not hold him. He defeats death. And he declares himself righteous. And then he offers that to his people. And so we receive that and we can face any rejection because we have that approval And now we're getting to the end of this chain, the end of the sequence, this process of salvation, which is God's perfect love. And it ends in not only being justified, but also being glorified. And so now we're back kind of outside of time into eternity future. So it begins in eternity past, ends in eternity future. The timeline is massive. But we understand what being glorified actually means because in verse 29, we see it. We see it that God foreknows us and predestines us to be glorified, and that is being conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what does it mean to be the, in the image of his Son? What does it mean to be in the image of Jesus? Well, in order to understand this, we have to understand what the purpose of humanity was from the very beginning. And we have to go back to Genesis and look at chapter 2 and see that God created Adam and Eve to be his image bearers. So God created Adam and Eve to represent him on creation, to reflect his goodness, his moral purity, his care, his mercy, his love, his tenderness to creation, so that creation, all of creation, could look on Adam and Eve and say, that's what God looks like. And how badly has that been marred? How, how blurry is that image now? Because if you look at even the best of us, we, we have just horrific abuses of the authority of the station that God has given us. We have not reflected him. We've reflected our own desires, our own will, our selfishness, our pride. And so there's a wide, vast expanse between where we're at and where we're going but that's, that breaks down when we see who it is that we are now being conformed in the image of. And it's the image of his son. 
Jesus is the one who comes back and shows us what it looks like to bear God's image perfectly in a fallen world. He was the perfect representation of God on earth. And we got to see that. We got to see his heart interacting with real people. We got to see the decisions that he would make in terms of going here or there, of speaking or not speaking, what to speak, how to speak. It's a perfect image of God. And so it is because he establishes that, that he is the firstborn. And then God has seen fit to wrap us into his posse. And we are now his brothers. And so we, we are revealed to creation as being the brothers of Christ. And so we're going to look like him. We're going to think like him. We're going to feel like him. We're going to make decisions like him. And this gives us immense comfort in the midst of meaninglessness. Because without this, we have this lingering suspicion that everything is going to end. Don't we? The sun's going to burn up, climate change is going to overwhelm the earth, and everything's going to stop existing. And silence, deafening silence, is going to continue perpetually. How does anything mean anything? It's only because of this promise of glory, of this promise that Jesus has defeated death and will bring us into an eternal life with him that we find meaning. And so if you're struggling with your work situation right now because it's like this feels meaningless because I'm just at home and I don't see my coworkers anymore and nobody's like, you know, affirming my work. Um, if you feel like your life has no meaning, if you tr are trusting in Christ, if you are being conformed to his image, that's all that matters. It's the only thing that matters. And so being glorified, that outcome of God's love, gives you comfort while you're in the midst of meaninglessness. And we don't have to wait to experience this until we die. Like some, some Christians would say that you just kind of like, oh, okay, well, I'm saved. And then now I'm just kind of like biding my time until Jesus comes back or I die. And then that's when I'll actually start to enjoy things or that's when I'll get my reward. And that's true to a degree. But right now we are being conformed into his image. And so grace is breaking through. And there's a great quote. Um, it's been attributed to a bunch of different people, so I'll just say it's a quote, that grace is but glory begun. So when you're experiencing grace in your life, it's just the start of glory, and that glory is grace perfected. And so those little moments of grace when you experience God's love, when you experience the love of a family member that you don't deserve, when you experience the love of a brother or sister in Christ, when you experience forgiveness and reconciliation and joy, that's just a little taste. That's a whisper of what we're going to get in glory. 
when glory is perfected. And ultimately, as we're looking at God's perfect love coming to us and comforting us, we learn something that's probably the most comforting of all, and that's our salvation's not about us. Our salvation is ultimately not about us. All of this happens. God predestined, he foreknew you, he predestined you to be conformed into the image of God or of his son so that Jesus would be magnified. Our salvation is not ultimately about us. It's about bringing Christ glory because he is the one who has done it all for us. And so what is creation waiting for? It's, re- it's waiting for the, revel- the revealing of the sons of God because they, us, are going to again speak about who God is to creation. And that's going to glorify God. That's going to be, bring God glory. And what, what immense glory it's going to be. I mean, think about it. Think about who the people of God are. We're a mess. We, we just fumble the ball all the time. There's so much work to bring us from our pride and our hate all the way to looking like Christ. But that's, it's going to be a bunch of those people, a bunch of messes who ultimately in the end look like Christ. And that is revealed. And so ultimately our comfort is, is found in Jesus being fully revealed as glorious, as our Savior King. And he is going to be surrounded by his people who are just radiating his greatness, radiating his glory because of how this work of salvation unfolded in our lives. And all creation is going to see it. And so this is how we, Paul wants us to take comfort in knowing this is how certain our salvation is, this is how great our salvation is, is that God didn't leave it up to us. He did it. And as a result, we are comforted and we give him all glory. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Um, God, I feel like this is just scratching the surface of how, of how beautiful and wonderful it is that you have known us in a way um, that has brought us into fellowship with Christ, that has brought us into fellowship and communion with each other. And Lord, we only get brief tastes of how good that's going to be. And yet we do get those great tastes of it. And so I ask that you would just continue to do that more here for this church, for these people, that we would experience that glory breaking into our lives and that it would create a greater longing for it to be fully revealed. And Lord, ultimately, I just ask that all of us would see how magnificent this is in such a way that all of the frustrations and pain of this life, though they are many and great, they're still not worth comparing to your glory. And so, Lord, I ask that you would comfort us and that you would be with us as we continue to worship you and respond to your word here this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.